0: I'm a little nervous about this one. Okay, I, and I don't know why. Maybe because you intimidate me a little bit. <laughs> Please, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm not. I'm not sure about that.
1: There's nothing to be intimidated
0: about. <laughs> Another year older, and what do you get? Well, hopefully wiser. This is uh, Gary Zabinski with the 54th edition of Booth One celebrating the art of lively conversation. Roscoe and I have both recently celebrated our birthdays again and I had dinner with Roscoe on his birthday and he's looking remarkably well. He's in good spirits and anxious to get back to his old chair opposite me in the booth. Alas, today is not the day of that triumphant return, but we are hoping for soon. Well, Meanwhile, we'll continue to probe the cultural landscape and the arts in search of timely and provocative topics and items of interest. And I'll continue to do so with a little help from my friends, my listeners, and a stable of scintillating guests. Speaking of which, my special co-host today is my old friend, raconteur in Man About Town, I hope you don't mind those adjectives. Mr. Frank Taranjo. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. Hi. Glad to be here. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background in the arts and why you are the perfect Booth One co-host. Give us your (laughs) CV, if you will.
1: Well, I recently taught at College of DuPage. I taught there for about 20 years and then I retired. And I still taught there part-time for a little while. I taught theater. I taught film taught speech. I would take groups to New York to see Broadway shows. I did that every year from 1991 to 2014. Before that, I taught at Fenton High School in Bensonville, where I directed plays and uh, coached the speech team. And one year, we won the state championship in both speech and drama.
0: That was the Illinois High School, Illinois uh, High School Association, Association yeah. speech team. Yeah. Congratulations. You, you had quite a number of winners over the years, I understand.
1: We did. We, it was very fun. I got to come into Fenton High School and uh, start working with them from the very bottom. They didn't have a program and wanted one. And by the time I left, they had two state championships under their belt. So it, it felt good. Then I went back and got a Ph.D. at Southern and uh, ended up teaching at College of DuPage till I retired. What was your Ph.D.? in? It was in communications, emphasis, oral, and terp.
0: Wow. I, I didn't know you could PhD in that.
1: You can. Southern and Northwestern have the two main Southern programs. Illinois Southern University. Southern Illinois University, Go yeah. uh, the, yes. Go Salukis. Yes, Salukis, <laughs> right. What, what was your thesis about? My thesis was on right brain, left brain, not thesis dissertation. Dissertation. Um, was on, uh,
0: I, I stand corrected. <laughs>
1: right. It was on right brain, left brain theory and how that relates to performance.
0: And how does it relate to performance uh,
1: Well, in a nutshell? In a nutshell. We lef- only
0: have an hour.
1: I know. <laughs> yeah, Your left brain usually likes to take over and do things, particularly when you're doing something artistic. For instance, if I asked you to draw a picture of a face, you'd probably draw a circle with two dots and a mouth and maybe some ears. It just be like a stick figure. The right brain doesn't do that. The right brain will do shades and textures and allow you to draw something that really looks like what it is you're trying to recurate rather than a stick figure. So what you have to do is you have to confuse the left brain, turn the left brain off, have the left brain say, I don't know what that is, I can't do it, you do it. And when the right brain does it, it's much more creative. And so I adapted principles that they used in other areas into performance. So when you got up there and you were reading a piece or you were doing a performance, you weren't just doing like cliche stock things. You would do things to confuse the left brain so the right brain would let the real emotions and all that come out so in a nutshell that's what it was on.
0: very very cool <laughs> that was like fun it was a it. little
1: new agey for the time yeah but i, would, I uh, would
0: imagine so you once coached and had as a student our producer in her high school years is that correct
1: i did and she was very successful went all the way to the state finals had a few interesting things happen at state finals, but she managed to place in state finals.
0: Do you remember what her big piece was?
1: <laughs> yes, I do. What, what was the um, big piece that producer, she would do? Are we allowed to say her name?
0: Yeah, well, we'll call her the producer okay. for
1: now. The producer is a lovely blonde woman, and I had her doing Nigger by Dick Gregory. Really? (laughs) I did. Well, because first of all, black literature, we're talking about the late 70s here. There was all kinds of wonderful pieces coming out, things like that. And at that time, Fenton did not have any black students. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to let that prevent me from using all this really cool literature. So there was a really beautiful passage that Gregory had written about his relationship with his parents and, and growing up and the kind of things he experienced. And she... Did it beautifully. I mean, she got the emotion from it, and it was sort of colorblind casting, <laughs> but not one that's done very often.
0: Must have been shocking for the judges when she would walk in the room and announce her piece. <laughs> yes, I made her. <laughs> I'm go sure on. they sat up at attention right away. Yeah, Let she it did happen. a beautiful
1: job. So yeah. yes, so she was one of my students, as was her sister. Her sister also was very, very talented. Wonderful family.
0: Well, let's uh, tell everybody about the spelling of your name as well so that they can look you up on Google and hunt you down on Facebook (laughs) after this. It's Taranjo, T-O-U-R-A-N-G-E-A-U. Correct. Did I get that right? You did. French. Uh,
1: French French-Canadian, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. French-Canadian.
1: Because the name means people who come from Tours or the terrain area of France. And so it was like Bostonian or New Yorker or, you know, a name kind of like that where it designated the people who came from that area. And I believe my ancestors came from France to Quebec area in like the 1600s or so.
0: So you're a you're a teacher, an educator, a speech coach, director. By all accounts, from people I've spoken to, you were a very inspirational teacher. Um, you have a lot of students who speak very highly of you, and you took your students to New York on trips. And then I would
1: take yes, um, although it was interesting. Those were summer trips. And we'd go to New York, and I expected mostly 19-year-olds, but I didn't. I mostly had adults, 30s, 40s, 50s. I even had an 80-year-old woman. So it was really kind of fun to go with adults to New York rather than having to, I didn't have to watch, you know, bed check, and I didn't have to look out and make sure they weren't getting into trouble. If you're, you know, 56 years old and you want to go stay out all night and drink, enjoy yourself.
0: (laughs) Have you been to New York recently?
1: Yeah, I was there last 4th of July.
0: Oh, so you would have not been there recently enough to <laughs> see, this year. for instance, Sally Field in The Glass Menagerie.
1: Well, it opened like yesterday, so no.
0: <laughs> it did open yesterday, <laughs> and it had a kind of reviews all over the map a yeah. little bit. It's a revisionist version of The Glass Menagerie, yeah, the directed by saying, Sam Gold.
1: Yeah, the shocking revival of, I read that as a headline, of Glass Menagerie. So
0: Ben Brantley was not a fan mm-hmm. in The New York Times. Chris Jones in the Chicago Tribune, however, said something to the effect of, now most people are not going to like this production, but you should give it a chance. Hmm. The New York Daily News, I'm just going to read just a little bit of that. Revisionist reboots of modern classics can open your eyes, it said, or make them glaze over. Uh, Broadway's stark stripped-back new take on The Glass Menagerie starring Sally Field lands, alas in the latter category, (laughs) uh (laughs) the glaze over part. Tennessee Williams' uh, 1945 masterwork has never emerged smaller, flatter, or less poignant. I think that that's uh, a pretty direct. On paper, it's an intriguing idea. In practice, it makes for a disjointed glass menagerie that is empty of emotion and impact. Sally did fairly well. She fares best in most of the notices and, and holds her own in what's called a low key, mostly drawl free performance. <laughs> you know, Amanda for can get kind of yeah. drawly, well, um, yeah. especially as the play moves on. Joe Montello as the son Tom uh, is. Is a two ticky by half, the Daily News said. Finn Whitrock, who's the gentleman caller, is one note eager beavery. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before no. and Madison Ferris who who plays uh, Laura and who actually has muscular dystrophy she oh, really, she really wow. is disabled and does spend her life in a wheelchair and, and this part spends most of the evening in the wheelchair uh, she uses a wheelchair off stage and is a newcomer whose lack of experience shows unfortunately uh, Jim and Laura, Jim being the gentleman caller Jim and Laura's doomed encounter always stirs up feelings, but not here. Hmm. I'm a little surprised. I thought that this show would do a little bit better, and I thought Sally Field would get high acclaim. But then again, that's just me looking at it from the outside. Right.
1: I mean, Sally Field has always had kind of a childlike quality to her, which I think Amanda should have. So I think she should be able to... to give actually a very nice Amanda, although supposedly Amanda was very pretty as a young woman, she had all these gentleman collars and all these jonquils and all that kind of stuff, and Sally Field is an attractive woman, so rather than Indeed. playing her as an old hag or something like that, I think that you know could work, um, but I'd definitely would be curious to see it.
0: I would hurry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, m- maybe not I I, no, I, I think could be
1: her, wrong. her star power will draw people in I did see her on Broadway a couple of years ago in Sylvia, uh, the goat, or who is Sylvia? The you Albie know, play, the Aldi play. Uh, She replaced Mercedes Rule, I had to see the show twice I saw Mercedes Rule in it and then I saw Sally Field in it They were both very different, but both very good
0: I like her, I'm a big fan I'd love to see this show. Hey, we need to recap our 89th Academy Awards um, (laughs) winners. Well, a couple of episodes ago, uh, I had Paul Stroley on. And uh, I also got Roscoe's picks. And we sort of went through a list and did uh, nine of the major categories. And we each picked who we thought, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I need to do a recap on those, Frank. How did you do it, the Oscar? Did you have a party? Do you do like a voting we thing? We used to or? have a
1: party. The problem with the party is when you're hosting, you have to do all kinds of hosting duties. And so rather than sitting and watching this show, you're getting people more napkins or you're putting out more chips or you're you're constantly working it. So we stopped doing that maybe five or six years ago. It was fun, and people would vote on what they thought was going to win, and we would have winners and losers, and the last year we did, it was very high-tech, whereas we could enter everything in a computer, and then it showed up on a screen with a pie chart in terms of how many people picked this person. Wow! So it got, but, you know, it was so much work, and I like watching this show, so now we just stay home and watch the show and enjoy it that way.
0: If you're going to get that high-tech, hire a staff. Hire hire a catering staff.
1: That was the next thing. But even then, the caterer is like, where did you put this? Where do you have, I mean, it's just, Ugh. you've hosted parties, I'm sure. Yes, you're yes. Just having all these people. People, you know, the bathroom without a toilet paper, you know, just stupid stuff. That yeah, happens. we've gotten to
0: the point where we prefer just to sort of watch them on our own yeah. because you, yeah. then you don't have to shush people up and you get to actually see the whole ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to a party couple of years ago at a bar, and I wound up sitting all by myself at the end of the bar right in front of the TV, oh, and I did not socialize whatsoever, and I and I feel bad about that, but I got to watch the show. Yeah. Let me run through our picks and our winners and losers. We had uh, nine categories that we voted in. I will say that I won uh, with six correct.
1: Congratulations.
0: Roscoe uh, had four correct. My friend Paul had only three correct winners. None of us picked Best Picture, although I, I, maybe I should give Paul Strolley half a point for picking La La Land.
1: So he did have it for a few moments. He had it. He had it for Briefly. a few moments,
0: and I'm sure he was thrilled <laughs> about that. We both picked uh, Damien Chazelle in La La Land. Uh, Roscoe had Barry Jenkins in For Moonlight. I was the only one who picked Casey Affleck for Best Actor. None of us picked Emma Stone for Best Actress. That was so obvious. Out of five, three of us picked everything but Emma Stone. I I think that it was a vote of protest.
1: Maybe. Well, I thought that was the one shoe in.
0: Did you enjoy that film?
1: I did. I, I liked it. I'm not as ecstatic as some people were. And it's really kind of my own fault. And my problem with the movie was the fact that neither Emma Stone nor Ryan Gosling are particularly good singers and dancers, and they weren't supposed to be, I guess, but I think when I'm seeing a musical, and I've you know grown up seeing musicals on stage as well as in films, I kind of expected them to be.
0: I felt exactly the same way. They were delightful to watch, pretty, but they were not singers or dancers. Yeah, they weren't. And I thought... And the Whatever.
1: opening song where we're not the opening song, but the second song where Emma Stone is singing with all of her girlfriends about going out, every single one was so much better than her.
0: Oh, they, they were good. Her girlfriends were very they were, talented. You know, and you know yeah. you
1: could see each girl going like I should have that part. Twillet, twirling
0: the skirts, uh, uh-huh, lifting the heels. Uh-huh. They were they were awesome.
1: But I liked both of them very much in the straight stuff. In the, the I thought they were very good as actors, and I was very touched by their relationship, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I've had a few problems with that I would not have been my best picture pick. Do you want to know what I would have picked? If sure. I were voting, of I would course. Hidden Figures, I thought was. Well, fabulous.
0: that was that was Roscoe's pick. Yeah. Which kind of surprised me. I'm not saying it's not a great film, but I, I didn't think it would be an Oscar winner.
1: I didn't think it would win either. It was just if I were voting. It was your emotional pick. I, that would be the one I would vote for. I yeah. like that one. The
0: all most. of us. Uh, all of us picked uh, Viola Davis. Yeah. Um, that was
1: actually that was a little bit slightly more obvious than Emma Stone, but um, <laughs> those two I thought were locks.
0: None of us picked uh, Mahershala Ali for. Best Supporting Actor. We all picked really? different people. Oh. We all did pick Manchester by the Sea as a Best Original Screenplay. Uh-huh. Roscoe and I both picked uh, Moonlight for Adapted Screenplay. Paul was going with Fences. Not a bad choice. Mm. Uh, and Cinematography, La La Land, Roscoe and myself got that one as well. Um, um, I
1: actually have a question, and this probably isn't to you, but just in general. Yeah. How did August Wilson adapt Offenses to the screen since he's been dead for like four years.
0: I think he he did it pre-death.
1: So maybe he and Denzel Washington were in talks to make it into a film back then.
0: Without question. It's, okay. been, it's been in the works as a potential film for many, many years. I did years. see
1: both of them, he and Vi- Viola Davis, on Broadway in the production of Fences. And I enjoyed it on stage. I thought it was a little stagey in the movie. I think it worked better as a play. So uh, that would be my only question about Fences. I agree. I, I saw show.
0: the original Fences with James Earl Jones, mm. uh, a wonderful production great as a play better than as a film and maybe Denzel should have rethought actually starring in it and directing it i never maybe. think that that's a great idea even for a seasoned director no i agree well there you are anyway 6 wins for uh little gary 6 out of 9 is not bad <laughs> 6 out of 9 wasn't too bad for this kind of show you never knew who was going to If you win. got
1: Emma Stone and Mahershala Ali you would have had 8 out of
0: 9 i would have Should have called me. I I shouldn't have gone with my heart. I should have gone with my head. Yeah. For sure. Hey, you been to New York quite a lot. You've seen many, many, many things over the years. Uh, I wanted to go through the Broadway schedule that's coming up for the rest of this season and just to highlight a couple of things, again, for our listeners to uh, keep track of. A play called Come From Away, which is a new musical that explores the uh, connection forged between a group of travelers whose planes were diverted uh, to a small Newfoundland town on September 11th, 2001, 9-11, a musical. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's at the uh, Schoenfeld Theater, and it opens next week on the 12th. Oh, actually, that's uh, today.
1: It is today. We're recording today. And a friend of mine saw it yesterday, actually. And? And she loved it. She thought it was terrific. So... Hopefully, they'll get some good reviews, but she thought it was just really wonderful. I've
0: read good things about it. Uh, A show called Sweat, the Lynn Nottage play, is transferring up to Studio 54 after a uh, uh, run at the Public Theater off-Broadway. That opens on uh, March 26th. The play that goes wrong.
1: (laughs) I saw that in London.
0: And how was it?
1: It is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life.
0: Olivier Award-winning play. Oh, it
1: is just hilarious. We went, you know, just... We were in London, we thought, let's go see something. Somebody recommended that. And it's a a group trying to put on some kind of like parlor murder mystery kind of thing. Are
0: they, are they like amateur university environment type thing? Or is it, no, is I don't it think it's amateur? amateur.
1: I don't think they're supposed to be amateurs. I think it's supposed to be a, a legitimate company like maybe a Steppenwolf or something like that. They're trying to put on this show and um, everything keeps going wrong including the set like falling apart. So they're doing their lines with their like foot holding up part of the set and then one of the main actresses gets clonked on the head and so so the stage manager who's this woman with like a book comes out to play her part and then in the second act you know the woman recovers but the stage manager wants to keep playing the part so the two of them are shoving each other off stage one dressed as lady so and so very beautiful the other one in like jeans and a tool belt and you know. <laughs> that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just one thing after another. They also, the same company has a production of the Peter Pan that goes wrong. <laughs> really? So yeah, so you know, Peter's going to be flying into walls, and <laughs> I mean, it's very slapstick, it's very silly, but the audience like really couldn't catch their breath. It was really that funny, and I'm so happy it's coming to New York. I hope to see it.
0: Is it at all any way similar to Noises Off in in, in sort yeah. of its
1: structure. It's the same idea that things are going wrong with sure. the production, but noise is off. You saw what was happening in front of the curtain, and then they'd switch around. You see what's happening behind the curtain. In this one, it's all in front of the curtain. There are blackouts, and then you know the scene supposedly is, is dark, and you see things happening between scenes. But for the most part, it all happens in front of the audience.
0: Another show that's opening in April is uh, War Paint, which was here in Chicago. Yeah, Roscoe saw that show. We Uh spent some time on an episode discussing it. He he was uh, doubtful about its Broadway transfer and success, but certainly... Work has been done on the show I would um, hope in so, order yeah. to in- increase its quality, I suppose. Um,
1: right. You've got Patty Lapone and Christine Ebersole, who I think will be draws initially. So people will want to see the two of them. You've got Elizabeth Arden versus Helena Rubinstein, which are fun people to sure. portray on stage. And I enjoyed it more than, than other people. I, I did like it. I thought it had a lot of interesting things going on. And I thought the two of them were great to watch. And any of the, the problems I had with it should be easily corrected. Because it wasn't so much like sometimes you see a production like, well, of course, the whole script, the whole idea of this production is doomed because it's just not a good idea. This is a very good idea. And it's got Mm -hmm. a good cast.
0: And Michael Greif is directing. It's, Correct. They they've got just a wonderful group of collaborators on this show. So there's no reason why yeah uh, the work shouldn't get done. Well, List. I
1: saw like a, one of the la- last performances of it, mm-hmm. and so I know they were making changes all the way through. And so I would talk to friends of mine who saw it earlier, and they would go, "What about this part?" I'm like, uh, "I didn't see that part. That wasn't that wasn't happening." So yeah. hopefully they made if they made changes during the run in Chicago, they should be able to do it then in New York.
0: Another show that we've discussed on one of our episodes is The Little Foxes um, with uh, Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon transferring roles. Uh, I I still don't know if they're doing it every other performance or on matinees or the weekends or if they flip a coin some night in the wings and they go, all right, you're Regina tonight. (laughs)
1: Right. Um, We saw a production of True West with John C. Riley and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and they switched every night. So one night would be in the matinee, one would play the one brother, and then in the evening production, he'd play the other brother. So they did it every other night. I'm guessing they probably would do the did same. Did you have
0: the opportunity to go to both I didn't versions?
1: To see, no, I only got to see the one, so I, I liked what I saw. But, you know, they're two, these sort of odd brothers, and so each of them could inhabit them pretty well, too, and I think that could happen with Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon. I think
0: you're right. The uh, The big show that's opening April 20th is... Uh, Bet Midler in Hello, Dolly. Yeah, yeah. Try to get tickets for that. Do you have tickets? I do
1: not have tickets. I know they're going for $700, and so I'll be saving up. That's what I hear. <laughs> if you can get them. If you can even get them, yeah.
0: Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is the uh, Willy Wonka musical, um, starring Christian Borle as Willy Wonka, directed by Jack O'Brien. Uh, this opens April 23rd. And... A Doll's House Part Two. Yeah, what is, I saw that listed. <laughs> the sequel to Hendrik Ibsen's uh, classic about a woman who makes a momentous decision to, to leave her husband and children, and the famous door slam at the end. I guess this is what happens after the door slam. I don't
1: think slammed. Henrik uh, worked on this production, did no, he? No,
0: Laurie, it's a great cast. Sam Gold of Glass Menagerie fame is directing. Okay. Uh, so he's no slouch. And the cast is uh, quite something. Lori Metcalf, Chris Cooper, Jane Howdy and Condola Rashad. Oh, okay. It has all of the elements to be something interesting. Who wrote it? Uh, it's by uh, Lucas Nath. Okay, I don't know. Liz. Who wrote H-N-A-T-H, and I believe it's pronounced Nath. Also want to talk about some things that are scheduled for the 17-18 season. Now this is okay. for, of course, yeah. after the summer. The Prince of Broadway, which has been trying to get to Broadway for a dozen years. This is a musical review featuring highlights from the career of Harold Prince. Oh. Uh, and he's producing it, and uh, he is co-directing it with Susan Stroman. Oh. This could be uh, a very interesting show. Very much like... Jerome Robbins Broadway. Jerome called, Robbins yeah. Broadway. Yeah. Uh, very much like that, I think. Music by uh, people like Stephen Sondheim and Candor and Ebb, Strauss and Adams, Bach and Harnick, Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course, uh, Jason Robert Brown, many, many, many others. That is slated for previews in August, which is an odd time to open a show. Yeah, really. And to uh, open at the end of August. M. Butterfly is being revived. Did you Julie Taymor is directing with Clive Owen in the lead role. Uh, Uh That uh, previews in the fall. Something called The Minutes. Now, that's Tracy Letts' new play. Uh, That's going to debut here at Steppenwolf this November and December, and then they've already announced that it's transferring to Broadway. So we can
1: catch it before it goes. We can
0: catch it before it goes. Anna Mm -hmm. Shapiro is directing. Scott Rudin is producing that. Uh, Of course, Frozen, the musical, (laughs) uh, will be coming to uh, Broadway in the spring of 2018, Michael Grandage is directing that, they're gonna make a fortune. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Do, do, they, need, do they need to make more money? Yeah. Can can I can I just have a, a couple <laughs> of points in that show? I wanted to mention a couple of things that are in the works. We won't waste a lot of time on these, but I always find Stuff that's sitting out there being workshopped or talked about. A lot of movie adapted shows uh, are are in the works. Um, uh-huh. Bull Durham, for instance. Oh my. Uh, Beetlejuice is <laughs> another one that's okay. <laughs> been in, working on for quite some time. Bombshell. Which uh, is the stage oh. incarnation of that fictional Marilyn yeah. Monroe musical that uh, was being created at the center of the TV series Smash, right. uh, which we loved season one of, and season two. Jump the shark, and there was no season many, three. Many, many ways, and there was no season three. Uh, something called Chasing Rainbows, also uh, targeted opening for late 2017. This is a musical that traces the early life of Judy Garland, oh. uh, from her small town birth to her starring role in the film classic The Wizard of Oz. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't go all the way to the end of her life, or to the point where they just moved her body from New York back to Hollywood. I don't know if you read about that. No. Yeah, lies in the. Ch- I guess, wanted to be closer Just to recently. Mo- closer to mom. Yeah, absolutely oh, wow. <laughs> absolutely. No. Yeah, Hollywood Park Cemetery was where that happened. The Cher Show. I don't know if this has any interest for you either. Also a targeted opening. The musical that traces the career of pop star Share.
1: Wow, but Cher wouldn't be in it, right? There'd be some Cher impersonator.
0: One can only assume. (laughs) And there are a lot of those, so it shouldn't be
1: too hard to find one.
0: Maybe she'll make a cameo late in Act 2 or something like that. Uh, They've been doing some staged readings of, of this production, proposed production. How it's going to turn out, I don't know. Music is by various composers, obviously. They're using songs that. Well, I mean, they're taking somebody who
1: has a great catalog of songs and certainly an interesting life and a lot of sort of like that uh, Gloria Estefan on your feet. You know, it was an interesting enough personality and there were enough good songs that it's worked. It's still playing on Broadway, so Cher certainly could. Deliver that.
0: Sure, the Boy from Oz. Another exactly. good example. Great right, songs. Right. An interesting story of a career, and and uh, that was a huge, huge hit.
1: And I think there's a Donna Summer one in the works too. I don't. It may not be specific yet, but I know I will see things that'll say, you know, like currently working on the. Again, somebody with a great catalog and an interesting story. If it's done right, those things are okay. Yeah, there Jersey is. Jersey Boys, that kind of. There
0: thing. is an unnamed. Working title called The Donna Summer Show Project. Okay. Devil Wears Prada, another oh, uh, film and, as a and book. This is As a Musical by Elton John. Oh, my. A book by Paul Rudnick.
1: Okay, that could work. Uh,
0: based on, of course, the 2003 novel and the 2006 film mm-hmm. starring uh, Meryl Streep. Uh, another production is If We Need One of Gypsy. This is, of course, the transfer from London with Imelda Staunton. Did you Uh, happen to see her in that show?
1: There's a a video production of it available, and I, I saw that, and I thought she was good. I thought she was very good. Again, do we need another gypsy? But, you know, it was a big hit in London, and it's a decent production.
0: She's said that she will transfer with the production to uh-huh. New York, although there has been no official word from the producers about that yet.
1: I'm not sure she's as big a draw here as she would be in London. I mean, people, film people know her from a couple of her roles, but she's a much bigger star over there. But if she's the whole reason the production works, then they should bring her.
0: I I, I agree. To Kill a Mockingbird is going to be mm-hmm. done on Broadway. Now, there are several stage versions of that, this one is being directed by Bartlett Schur oh. and written by Aaron Sorkin uh. as a uh, adaptation of Harper Lee's novel. Uh, scheduled for next season, although there are no announced dates, uh, King Kong is in the works. <laughs> King Kong has been a big hit uh, at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne, Australia, uh, for a couple of years now. There's no set timeline or theatre chosen, but Jason Robert Brown is the composer. I, gosh, I don't know. It's, I think it's, there are clips from
1: the Australian version yeah. online. I remember seeing that a couple of years ago. It's been around for I think for a while. And of course, the other King Kong movie just opened this week on the Skull is Island. Just opened. And so, if that's a big hit, people may you know be hit with Kong mania. It could work.
0: And finally, the last one I'm going to mention here has <laughs> just got me. I don't know. It's it's got my head spinning. The Honeymooners. Ah. Also, a musical. Huh. Uh, by Stephen A. Uh, Weiner and Peter Mills. This is got quite the cast as well. Michael McGrath, Hank Azaria, uh, Laura Bell Bundy, and Leslie Kritzer, all uh, great Broadway veterans and, and terrific mm-hmm. comedic actors. And we're
1: talking the Jackie Gleason Honeymooners. We are talking wow.
0: exactly the Jackie Gleason Honeymooners. John Rando is uh, slated to to direct. That's just a taste of what's on the boards and what's in the works for Broadway for upcoming seasons. Let's talk about a film for a minute. We were talking about films a little earlier. Uh, You taught film. We both saw Get Out. Get get Out. (laughs) Just recently, the Jordan uh, Peele film. Uh, What did you think? Well, I thought
1: it was intriguing. I, it had been recommended for me to see and I thought it was a horror show and I said, I don't see horror. I don't see Saw with people getting arms and legs cut off and i just do not not interested in that at all. And they go, that's not really what this is. And it isn't. I mean, it's not a horror show in the sense that it's gore. It's more mind games. And that I find intriguing. You know, the concept is a little out there but it's, but it's believable. And I'm not a big fan of science fiction either but if they sort of explain... What scientific principle they're playing off of, then I can I can go with it if that makes sense. If it doesn't, I'm like, well, you're just making that up. It's not really very plausible. And this one, the concept that they come up with involves hypnosis and, like I said, mind games. I thought was believable, so I could buy that. And it gets a little violent towards the end as things get <laughs> tense. Yeah, yes, but it's still not chopping arms and legs Great. off and torturing people and that kind of stuff that you so often have in horror films.
0: A slight spoiler. Alert. An antlered deer head plays a very prominent part in the climax of the movie. I won't give it away, but it certainly does. Mm -hmm. Uh, I loved this movie. I was on the edge of my seat for all of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it kind of veered off into the weird science fiction, almost alien invasion type towards the end when they kind when of think reveal it yeah. all, they reveal all of the answers that you've been dying to find out for mm-hmm. much of the film and I'm not giving anything away here obviously you go to a movie to have a beginning middle and end and if you don't yeah, figure out the uh, beginning by the end then it's not a very successful film
1: and this movie does answer all your questions sometimes when you see something that's a little different they're like you know we'll never know and you're like well, I just sat here for two hours I'd kind of like to know if you don't mind yeah unless it's unless it's something really artistic and really well done where that was part of the point. But this one does, if anyone goes see it, it goes to see it, it does answer all the questions. You know exactly who's been doing what and why to whom. And I like that.
0: I read a wonderful article in The Atlantic just a few days ago that talked about the idea of seeing and eyes in the movie. He's mm-hmm. a photographer. Our, mm-hmm. our lead character is a photographer. So he sees the world through a lens quite a lot. And even when he's looking at people without his camera, he looks at them in a photographer's way. One character, one major character is actually has gone blind uh, in mm-hmm. his old age. Right. And that's very, very telling. The scene between the young lead uh, uh, gentleman and this older man is really quite astonishing because it's different than any other scene that he has with almost all of those other people. He's very much at ease with this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's very much interested in talking to him further, and he sees him as almost like a kindred spirit. Of course, they're both in the arts. Uh, The blind guy uh, is a gallery dealer um, in photographs and paintings and things and has been for years, and he's a fan, apparently a fan. So, the idea of sight and not seeing things and seeing things in a different way and seeing through other people's eyes plays a very, very strong part in this film. And it's a great little sort of subtext. Thing that Jordan Peele has worked into the the movie all the way through. I think he even asks very uh, several times, w- "Have you seen my camera? Where's my camera?" He needs the camera mm-hmm. in order to see the world clearly. Uh, it's it's really quite wonderful. I couldn't recommend it more highly. I again, I was on the edge of my seat, laughing in all the right places and freaking out in all the other right places. Oh yeah, I'm glad too- you enjoyed it as much I as I did.
1: And it has a bingo scene, like. No other bingo scene in a movie that's all i'll say
0: that's I, it, the bingo <laughs> scene lost me a little bit and without again giving anything away to uh, our listeners who haven't seen it who are going to go see it i was confused by it i'd like to go back and watch the film again and concentrate on what that bingo scene really means that's
1: pretty pivotal and
0: what it's all about yeah. I, I i was shaking my head in in disbelief and wonderment going, what what what's going on? Because there's another scene taking place somewhere else and they uh-huh. keep flashing back to this bingo thing. And then they go back to the other scene, which I found much more interesting. But as you say, the bingo scene is pivotal, it is very pivotal. in the uh, yeah. plot points here. You go to a lot of Chicago theater, as we do. I try to, yeah. Did you see uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert recently?
1: I just saw it two days ago. No kidding. And I thought it was really terrific. I had seen it in New York on Broadway, and it's a giant production, and so I was kind of curious how they were going to be able to pull this off in a little 90-seat theater, and they did it wonderfully because the focus was on the characters, was on the, the actors, and there were production numbers, people dancing. It was a, a cast of probably 10, 12, 15 But they had the bus, if anybody knows the the movie or the play. You know, there's a bus that travels along the outback in Australia as they're trying to get to this venue to perform. And they had a bus moving around on the stage, which was charmingly simple. It's these three drag queens who perform and they performed the daylights out of it. Isn't this in
0: like a little black box theater? is not it It is a black box theater, yeah. And they had an actual bus on the stage?
1: They had a vehicle that looked like (laughs) the outlines of a bus that had seats, and they pushed it around the stage. And there's that one iconic scene from the movie where the one guy is sitting on top of the bus, and he's wearing this hugely long scarf, and it's like flying in the wind. I mean, usually on the posters, you see a person sitting on a bus, and then there's this scarf, like blowing this big, 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 long, long, long scarf flowing in the wind. Well, that would have been very difficult. But as the guy was singing, he's singing opera at the time, he's singing this op- operatic song, he had this big, long train and somebody followed behind him and just sort of threw it up the air every once in a while. <laughs> I mean, the stuff that was impossible, they just sort of like, here, you want the floating scarf, very here it clever. is. Here very clever, very clever. Yeah, so it was very clever, very creative, really wonderful performers. The older drag queen was played by Terrence Stamp in the movie, is played yeah. by Honey West, who's a Chicago legend, and she terrific. I mean, she really is very good. She's funny. She's, you know, witty. She's bitchy. And then she's very tender in certain moments. So Pride Films and Plays is a very interesting group here in uh, Chicago. I know you've talked about possibly doing another, um, you know, session with them. But they do um, a lot of really good work. They just took over the profile space. So they have the two theaters that Profiles used to use. And they're making good use of it. This uh, Priscilla was their first show. And it had to be extended. It was so successful. And then I, I was there on Thursday night. And it was packed. Every seat was taken.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any great fears in the world? Do you have a fear of heights? Are you afraid of driving in the fast lane? Um, no,
1: no, I definitely don't. Do I'm you, not afraid of that. Do you
0: fear Ibsen or... <laughs>
1: um, I am not afraid of Ibsen. I don't know that I have many fears. I can't really even think of any that would come off the top of my head. Well, that's remarkable. I would be frightened walking alone at night in a sleazy area or something, but that's just kind of common sense. I don't have any irrational fears.
0: Frequent fans of this show will know that uh, I have a uh, an inordinate, well, maybe not inordinate, I think it's a rational fear of sharks.
1: Oh, huh, really?
0: A- and we haven't, uh, we haven't done a shark update in a while, but I have a short story that I've uh, come across. Great white sharks have shown no sign of skipping their annual visits to Cape Cod. Uh, Cape Cod waters to hunt for prey. You weren't thinking of going to Cape Cod anytime soon. No, I
1: was not. I'm not afraid of sharks because I would probably never swim in a place. Unless a shark is going to attack me on the street, I don't know how a shark could get at me, so I have no
0: fear. Lake Lake Michigan? You're not afraid of sharks in Lake Michigan? I don't know that there are any sharks in Lake Michigan. Well, I I believe that there are. (laughs) I believe that there are large ones and that they are after you in three feet of water. I don't like deep water and much of it is because of my Fear of sharks. Wow. According to uh, some data recorded last year during ocean expeditions led by uh, state shark experts, did you know that there were state shark? I'm experts? not surprised. That's but I not didn't easy know that. to say. And the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy researchers identified 147. Great whites swimming off the coast of Cape Cod from June through October. Of those predators, they said 89 were considered, quote, new sharks, meaning they hadn't been tagged, they hadn't been followed. What does this mean, Frank? It means that they're breeding. It means they're breeding like rabbits, and there are just more and more sharks out there. Although the number of sightings over the years has increased, swimmers should have little fear. Oh, yeah, (laughs) well, they can say that. Um, The last fatal shark attack in Massachusetts apparently was in 1936. Well, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> Seems like good odds, but still, non-fatal attacks are also very rare. Only a handful have been recorded in the last century. Most recently in 2014, when a pair of kayakers uh, off the coast of Plymouth were knocked into the water by a great white, and, and uh, which bit into one of their boats. Oh, <laughs> wow! <laughs> this guy goes on to finally say, "The best way to avoid any kind of interactions with these sharks is through." And I thought perhaps he was going to say stay out of shark-infested waters or don't go swimming where there are sharks. No, he says through public education.
1: Oh, okay. Could be just putting up a sign, sharks in this water, (laughs) don't (laughs) swim. That's public education, I guess.
0: (laughs) I completely, completely agree with you. I'm not going anywhere near Cape Cod and certainly not going anywhere near any deep water anytime soon.
1: How about the Shedd Aquarium?
0: Yeah, I can look at them in, through glass, okay, but okay. I always have this image in my mind that someone's going to shatter the glass, <laughs> and or throw you in. wild sharks are going to come <laughs> dripping out of the tank and on the floor, flopping around, looking for the nearest ankle to bite, and I'm just <laughs> absolutely going to freak out. I would lose my cool entirely. Have you ever heard of a, a show on Broadway called Rachel Lily Rosenblum? I have not. Rachel Lily Rosenblum was one of the great flops of all time. Mm. This is from the early seventies, nineteen seventy-three. You've been to Joe Allen, I have, in uh, yes. New York, yes. and you know that the walls are covered with uh, window card posters flops. of all the flop shows mm-hmm. that have ever occurred. And there are some parameters for how you can get on the wall.
1: It's got to be a genuine flop.
0: A genuine <laughs> flop, either closed before it opened. If a show closes before it opens, can it actually be a flop? Discuss. I don't know.
1: I'm, I would say if it has like a major star and it's a, it's a name show, like some of these ones we've talked about opening with, you know, some of these name people. Yeah. If it closed before it opens, I think it would, if it's just a show that no one really heard of yet and doesn't have anybody of any note in it, then yeah. probably not. Yeah.
0: It, it can't have run for longer than a certain number of performances. I think it also I,
1: has to have a poster so they can put that up. If it hasn't gotten to the poster key. stage, then it's not going to get to be a great flop.
0: Well, Jennifer Ashley Tepper who is the director of programming at the cabaret in New York, Feinstein's uh, 54 Below. Okay. Uh, she is going to revive this for two concert readings, oh, two wow. concert stage readings. Now, this is a uh, cautionary tale of celebrity a la all about Eve. Rachel... Uh, And it's spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And she says, I have an extra A in my name. It's the A that Barbara dropped from hers. (laughs) So now you have some sense of what kind of audience they were trying Uh to capture at that point. It's about a down-on-her-luck young woman who works at the uh, Fulton Fish Market. And she moves to Hollywood where she leapfrogs from maid to gossip columnist to unlikely star. Uh, let's just say that all does not go well. Frank Rich in the New York Times remembered the final sold-out performances as packed with theater A-listers in an atmosphere so heady you think you were at a Tony Awards gala. But uh, the show was irreparable. There was a photograph in the New York Times of this show uh, starring Ellen Green of oh. uh, Little Shop of Horrors fame yeah. and the wall at Joe Allen with the poster on it. Notice what's next to the poster.
1: Uh, Dr. Javago, and Legs Diamond
0: I did Legs Diamond you did I, you I, did. St- I stage managed Legs Diamond that show yes that I production? did wow. that very very one with uh, Peter Allen uh, rest his soul the late great Peter Allen wow. This poster and the subsequent poster of Rachel Lily Rosenblum, they're they're on the long wall uh, on the left-hand side when you walk into Joe Allen, all the way towards the back. Okay. Way towards the back. They're going to uh, revive this uh, in a staged reading and um, could be interesting to go to if anybody's in New York.
1: How recent was that article? Two days. So it must be relatively soon coming up. It hasn't happened yet.
0: It's relatively soon. Get on the Feinstein's 54 Below website if you're uh, interested and see if you can't see this musical. I'd love to hear from a listener who actually went to this show. Yeah. Maybe my friend Robbie Young in New York will go to this Sounds kind of campy. Extremely. Yeah. Robert Osborne passed away. I know. Did you ever meet um, Robert Osborne in any of your film travels? No,
1: I never met him, but I feel like I know him because when he would host the film shows, he always had such a comforting, sort of personal, I mean, I felt like he was my uncle or something.
0: This is what a lot of Hollywood stars have said as well, uh, that uh, he could not have been a more friendly, caring person. He was genuinely interested in what these actors and actresses did for a living, and genuinely interested in Hollywood and Hollywood lore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that he was lifelong friends with Olivia de Havilland. Apparently, they spoke every week, oh, every wow. Sunday, I think. They had a phone call together. But I did want to mention that TCM is doing a Remembering Robert Osborne Marathon where they're going to show interviews uh, that he did with luminaries like Debbie Reynolds and Liza Minnelli, Betty Hutton, Ernest Borgnine, intimate interviews with Peter O'Toole and uh, Eva Marie Saint, uh, Kim Novak, Alan Arkin, Louise Rayner. He also did Maureen
1: O'Hara just before she died. A couple of months before she died, he interviewed her. That's a
0: wonderful interview yeah, as well. Yeah, it is.
1: It really is. Well,
0: we'll miss Robert Osborne. He was the uh, face of TCM definitely, and uh, a face of Hollywood in, in general.
1: I believe he has a Lucille Ball connection because she decided at one point, I think it was maybe after... I love Lucy, but before here's Lucy or somewhere in between there, she wanted to help young actors. So she developed a company of young actors and kind of mentored them and helped them put on various performances and he was part of that group. So he, you know, knew her back in the day.
0: What a great life he mm-hmm. had. Yeah. Movie stars come to mind because, have you been watching Feud?
1: Yeah, I watched the first episode, yeah.
0: Feud, uh, Betty and Joan, Mm -hmm. which is on Sunday evenings on the FX channel. This all takes place in 1961 and 1962 as uh, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis are filming Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, directed by Robert Aldrich, played by uh, Alfred Molina on the show. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the first episode?
1: I enjoyed it thoroughly. You know, initially I thought, I wish they hadn't cast two famous people as Betty and Joan, because I thought it would have been better if they had somebody else. But after watching it for five minutes, I thought, no, those are the perfect people to play them, because they really knew how to do it. Go pretty high, but never over the top for both of them, because both actresses were pretty <laughs> over the top just in real life, but yet they keep the humanity in there. Joan Crawford actually is quite sensitively played. She is a lot more, you know, you think of her as this major Hollywood bitch, but she really does not come off that way, and from what I played understand... Played by she, Jessica Lange. By Jessica Lange, yeah, and evidently she was not. She was as insecure as all the rest of us are.
0: And uh, Betty Davis is played by Susan Sarandon. Now... Right. I loved Susan Sarandon. I think she absolutely nails this character.
1: Without impersonation. That's what's good about the two of them.
0: I agree. Without yeah. without an impersonation or a mimicking right, in some way. Right. Uh, when she does that scene last week where she makes her entrance out of her trailer after doing her own makeup on the first day of shooting... <laughs> phenomenal yeah. it, it, that that could have been played so badly over the top mm-hmm. and she did it just enough to the hilt to make it work. Mm-hmm. I'm not as fond of Jessica Lang in the Joan Crawford role. And I, I'm hoping that she's going to grow on me. I do like Alfred Molina quite a lot and Stanley Tucci is Jack Warner. I hope he reappears because mm-hmm. he's, he's quite the character. Yeah. But uh, as you say, they, they do very well without becoming,
1: Caricatures, caricatures,
0: yeah. and doing impressions. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, it's so easy to do a Betty Davis. <laughs> no, everybody's done it a million <laughs> I was, times. I was yeah. watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf the other the other night in the beginning, where she's just obsessed with mm-hmm. who. What movie is that from? What a dump, dump. <laughs> that goes on and on and on for several minutes in that film. It's a wonderful series. Uh, I think it's about eight. Weeks eight or ten, long, but yeah, eight to, to eight. ten weeks long.
1: But what's good about it, I think, and, it, and people have pointed this out, the fact that it shows how difficult it was for women of a certain age to get roles, and... A lot of that is still true. Now, Meryl Streep helps. Of course, she gets them all. But, you know, Meryl Streep shows that one can find interesting material. Florence Foster Jenkins, I thought, was a very fun movie. Interesting material for mature women. And um, back then, even though Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were huge, huge, huge stars, they were getting no offers. So Joan had to go and find something for herself. And at least according to the series, she finds Baby Jane and realizes that even though she's not the best of friends with Betty with Betty, they can really make it work. And they did. I mean, it turns out to be a great picture.
0: I, I love the fact that uh, Joan sends out her maid to buy every dime novel yeah. and every, anything that's got a woman, <laughs> woman on, on the, the cover, cover.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and bring the books home, and she comes <laughs> home with shopping bags full of them, and mm-hmm. boxes full of books, and Joan Crawford goes through all of these stories, and she finally lands on this one uh, uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane book that mm-hmm. no one ever heard of. No one knows who the author is. She buys the rights, and the, the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. Yeah, is. We usually wrap up our podcasts, uh, Frank, with our Kiss of Death segment. Oh, this is uh, a tribute and a profile of someone who has passed away recently. I'm not going to do Robert Osborne because I just, I don't feel worthy.
1: I don't feel yeah,
0: like, yeah. I, I don't feel I can do it justice. And there'll be plenty of tributes on TCM about him. But I'm going to talk a little bit about someone today named Stanley Bard. Have you ever gone past in your travels in New York, the Chelsea Hotel on West 23rd Street? Oh, Absolutely. Are you familiar with the Chelsea Hotel and its history? I
1: know, it's got quite a history to it, yeah.
0: Well, Stanley Bard was the Robin Hood of innkeepers who nurtured talented writers and artists and tolerated assorted deadbeats as the manager and part owner of the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan for more than 40 years. He passed away just a few days ago at the age of 82. And the Chelsea is a 12-story Victorian Gothic structure, as I mentioned, on West 23rd Street. And it's already a cultural landmark with a reputation as a bohemian sanctuary. Stanley Bard's father uh, purchased the building. Stanley began working there in 1957 as a plumber's assistant with a college degree. Wow. I don't know if that was a uh, mm. great preparation for being a hotelier or not. Ed Hamilton wrote a book about the Chelsea Hotel called Legends of the Chelsea Hotel, Living with Artists and Outlaws in New York's rebel mecca. Apparently, Stanley never took credit for anything bad happening in his hotel. Mm. Uh, In fact, his positism uh, bordered on pathological. There's a story, a famous story of a tenant seeing a swarm of policemen on the ninth floor at one point and assuming that Joe the Junkie, who lived on the ninth floor (laughs) as a permanent resident, had finally OD'd. Oh, well, Bard (laughs) corrected them, said, no, 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 no. The police officers are, in fact, guests here. And the Junkie was vacationing abroad. (laughs) (laughs) The tenant, it seems, had been misled by the stretcher, the corpse, and the body bag. No, no, nothing to see here. Move on, move on. Milos Forman, the uh, filmmaker, uh, once uh, teasingly asked Bard on camera whether any guest had ever died at his hotel, and Bard cited, only one, Alpheus Cole, was a portrait painter, uh, who lived to be 112 and lived there for decades. He neglected to mention, however, among others, Dylan Thomas, who drank himself to death and was rushed to a hospital emergency room uh, (laughs) from the hotel in 1953. Uh, Nancy Spurgeon, the girlfriend of Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols, who was stabbed to death in their room in 1978. Some of the guests who um, Stanley came to know personally. It's like a who's who of the New York art mm. world. Dylan Thomas, Arthur Miller, Bob Dylan, Arthur C. Clarke, Stanley Kubrick, Leonard Cohen, who wrote a song about the Chelsea Hotel called Chelsea Hotel Number Two. <laughs> I guess he didn't have to go far for that title. Probably not. <laughs> The artist Christo and Jean Claude. Uh, Christo actually wrapped Jean Claude, uh, his wife, there for a very famous photograph. Dee Dee uh, Ramone of the Ramones, uh, Joni Mitchell, Nico, who was part of the Andy Warhol yeah. posse, Dennis Hopper, Madonna lived there for a while, Robert Mapplethorpe, and the Warhol superstars Edie Sedgwick, Viva, Hollywood Lawn, and Candy Darling. Wow. I may change my name to Candy Darling. I (laughs) like it it so much. Um, A stay at the uh, Chelsea Hotel had long been regarded as a rite of passage for almost everyone who was anyone in the world of art, music, literature, and the theater during 50 years of Stanley's brilliant tenure. The Chelsea, in fact, was where Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road. Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey in one of the rooms there. And William Burroughs wrote Naked Lunch. Also, Bob Dylan, hmm, not my uh, favorite songwriter, wrote Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. He lived there for a while and wrote music in one of the rooms. Mr. Bard lent long-term tenants money and tolerated their overdue bills. Once when a photographer owed back rent, Mr. Bard hired him as a bellman.
1: Oh, (laughs) <laughs> that,
0: that, wow. that could so not bad. be kinder. Yeah. He would see you, he would uh, know that you owed him two months' rent, and you would cry to him, and he would say, don't worry, keep painting, keep painting, keep painting. Hmm. It, it, fascinating gentleman. He's survived by thousands of people in the arts who have called the Chelsea Hotel their home for a night, a week, a month, a year, or for several decades in, in a few cases. As long as the Chelsea Hotel stands... The spirit of Stanley and his undying dedication to the arts he so loved will live on. I'll finish with this quote of Stanley's that he may have said best. Over the years, people here have created some really beautiful, meaningful things, and they just needed that little bit of help to be able to do it. This hotel has heart and soul, and it's not all about the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I have read recently that a consortium of investors have bought the hotel, and it may be due for demolition uh, and something else put up on the site. Although it does have some sort of landmark status, so I have a feeling that they can't really do too much with the outside. But it will never be the same. What a fascinating man Stanley Bard was. As I said, uh, passed away this week at 82.
1: wonder if he was still working there during all that time.
0: He had sold the hotel and had retired to Florida.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: He had sold his interest in it. Just got too old to do yeah.
1: it. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of work.
0: <laughs> and everybody lived there. Everybody who was anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Bard. Frank, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We uh, always love to have new voices and, well, new faces. I like to have a new face across from (laughs) me every once in a while. Will you come back again and uh, join us another time? I sure would. Like us on Facebook, everyone. Follow us on Twitter. Email me at gary at booth-one.com. Of course, I always love to hear your questions, feedback, comments. You know, even you, Frank, if you want to comment on this show, just write to me.
1: (laughs) I think it is fine.
0: And just a reminder, you can help support Booth One's mission of presenting the best in lively conversation and engaging amazing guests by going to our donate button on the website. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible. And we would be so appreciative. The entire Booth One team would be grateful. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski along with my guest, Mr. Frank Taranjo. Thanks again, Frank.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Saying keep listening and so long until next time.